Hi everybody and welcome back to our Digital Campus broadcast. Tonight we're going to be continuing in our series, You Fool, based on 1 Corinthians 3 verse 18, which says, Stop deceiving yourselves. If you think you are wise by this world's standards, you need to become a fool to be truly wise. So uh, tonight I'll be talking about the foolishness of waiting. I'd like to start with a verse passage from the Psalms. And it's Psalms 27, verses 11 through 14. It goes, Teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the right path. For my enemies are waiting for me. Do not let me fall into their hands. For they accuse me of things I've never done. With every breath they threaten me with violence. Yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. And I'd like to point out that phrase there, wait patiently for the Lord, shows up um, twice in verse 14. It's put differently in different translations. So in the NET, it actually says, rely on the Lord. In the message, it says, stay with God. Now you might look at these different translations and go, oh, well, they're kind of saying it in different ways, right? They mean different things. Wait patiently for the Lord, rely on the Lord, stay with God. Those mean different things, right? Mm -hmm. Well, not exactly. They, they, they're a lot more similar in meaning than you would think, but I'll unpack that later. Um, now I'm going to go to um, the, the story of a couple of the patriarchs of the family of Israel. So I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. For context, Abram and Sarai have been called away from their family, and they've been called by the Lord to go where the Lord is leading them, to the land of Canaan. They don't know that's where they're being led, but uh, the Lord's leading them to the land of Canaan, and they've also been promised offspring. They're two kind of old fogies, and so they, they kind of given up on any chance of having children of their own. But the Lord has promised them, I will give you descendants, I will give you a child, I will give you a son. So, starting in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 16, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarai with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. Gotta love, gotta love Sarai. Saying to Abram, hey, I have this brilliant idea. And then suddenly when it goes south, it's all Abram's fault. But anyway, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms. But now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. And then Abram replied, look, she is your servant. So deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. And then after this uh, story, that's not the end of the story between Hagar, Sarai, Isaac, and Ishmael. Because uh, when Hagar runs away, she meets an angel in the wilderness who tells her to go back and live underneath of her mistress Sarai and just kind of deal with it. And so 
even after this, there's continued conflict between Sarai and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael and this, this, this tension between these two sons of Abram. But the problem is, if they had just followed God's instructions, none of that would have happened. God didn't say, hey, uh, I'm going to give you a son by having sexual relations with Hagar. So go ahead and do that right away. He didn't come down to Sarai in a dream and say, hey, psst, let me give you a hint. You're not actually going to be the one to have Abram's child. You should, you should definitely have Hagar do that instead. None of that. Sarai took it into her own hands and she took what she thought was a good idea, what was the best option, because God wasn't moving, God wasn't doing anything, and so obviously he must be waiting for us to do something. And so she went and took it into her own hands. And as a result of that, generations down the line, even today, there is strife between the lineages of Isaac and Ishmael. Now let's look at a, a contrasting example, one from the Old Testament and the, the patriarchs, who did wait, who did follow the will of God. Um, I'm not going to read you any verses because the story of Joseph is a massive story. It's an amazing story. So if you if you go back and read it, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But the story of Joseph is one of waiting, of, of waiting for the will of the Lord and not taking very much into his own hands as far as like trying to fulfill this will of God. So God gave him a dream. He saw in a dream uh, that both the moon and stars were bowing down to him, the sun, and he also saw that his brothers, like, uh, wheat bundles bowed down to his wheat bundle, and he, he had these dreams, and so he knew, okay, someday my family is going to bow down to me. Now, uh, a lot of people kind of frame Joseph in the light of, like, oh, he was bragging. He was going around telling his family that they were going to bow down to him. Stupid Joseph, but I don't... I don't necessarily see that. Now, this this is my interpretation of it, okay? This is not in the Bible. But I kind of see Joseph as just, he was telling his family a dream he had. He had received a vision from the Lord, a, an amazing vision, whether the brothers liked it or not. It was a vision that was very special to Joseph, and he told them about it. And then he, the Bible doesn't really say he like went around with a big head or anything. He just had this dream. He told his brothers. They got ticked. And then they threw him into a well and sold him into slavery. So after he was sold into slavery, he arrived at the house of Potiphar, and he was a slave in Potiphar's house. And the Bible tells us that he was one of Potiphar's best servants, and Potiphar gave him basically control over almost everything in the house. He was such a good servant, Potiphar trusted him so much that he gave him this massive responsibility. He let him run his house. And then, of course, Potiphar's wife had to come in and mess all of that up. She tried to seduce Joseph. Joseph maintained that responsibility and that loyalty to Potiphar, and he rejected the offer multiple times until Potiphar's wife finally, like, tore off his clothing and then framed him for trying to rape her. And so then Joseph was unfairly imprisoned. And at this point, Joseph could so easily have, like, gotten down in the grumps and just said, oh... I'm gonna go eat worms. <laughs> Nothing's going right. First, my bro, my, I tell my brothers a dream, and it was it was a good dream, man. And then they they sold me into slavery, and now I I'm I'm going along with this whole slave thing. I'm doing my job. I'm I'm being a good slave and a good servant. 
And then this woman, she just won't leave me alone. And now I'm in prison. And... <laughs> but no, he didn't do any of that. The Bible tells us that when he was in prison, he again gained the trust of who he was under. He gained the trust of the warden and the warden like gave him tons of responsibility in the jail. Think about that. The warden gave a prisoner responsibilities in the jail. How nuts is that? Like you, you don't see that usually. That You don't go into a prison with a bunch of scum and lowlife and criminals and all that. And then you go and point at a criminal and say, hey, you run this prison like that doesn't usually happen so this shows again that joseph is taking what he has and he's taking what's set before him and he's working at it with all that he can and serving god and working for the glory of god and uh, when you when you go throughout this passage and the story of joseph you also don't see a whole lot of instruction from the lord you just see him going about and doing things. It's nothing like when he was thrown into prison, he cried out to God and God said, be responsible in prison and I will elevate you. No, none of that. He, he just gets thrown into prison and he starts doing the right thing. So then um, he has, of course, the whole dream scenario where uh, the, the baker and the cupbearer of Pharaoh are in prison. And so Joseph tells the cupbearer, hey man, the, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna be the cupbearer for Pharaoh again. And Pharaoh will welcome you back and forgive your, forgive your crime. Uh, you baker, um, uh, now don't lose your head when I tell you this, but, uh, <laughs> so the, that didn't end very well for the, for the baker, but the cupbearer got out and Joseph told him, hey, please, Please, if you if you get to Pharaoh's court, tell him that I'm innocent and that I'm locked up in here for a crime I did not commit. And the cupbearer's like, oh yeah, man, yeah, thank you so much. And so the cupbearer gets out and forgets totally about Joseph until Pharaoh has a dream and all of his wise men go, oh, I don't, I don't know. But then uh, the cupbearer remembers Joseph, calls him in, tells him, hey, dude, the Pharaoh has a dream and I know you are the dream master. So could you please help us out here? Joseph says, well, okay, uh, God, help me out here. And so God tells him the, the, the seven years of prosperity and the seven years of famine and all that. And then Pharaoh, you know, makes him basically the next level under Pharaoh. Every, everything in Egypt was run according to how Joseph said it. So he went from happy at home to being in a well and then he was sold into slavery by his own brothers, no less. That's got a sting. And then he was at, at, in a good place at, in the house of Potiphar. And that was ruined for him as well. He was thrown into prison. And then uh, he attained some responsibility and some authority in the prison, which must have been fairly nice. And then uh, he thinks, yes, I'm finally going to get out. And then he doesn't get out for a very long time. But then he finally gets out. And suddenly he's the lord over all of Egypt. And then, uh, well, under Pharaoh, but I, uh, J Joseph was the only person under Pharaoh, which meant that Pharaoh could tell him to do anything and Joseph would do it. Um, so he had all the responsibility in Egypt and he set up this like five bullet point plan for saving Egypt and all that. And then of course, down the line, his, his brothers come to him in the time of famine for wheat. They don't realize it's Joseph. Joseph says, hey, and his brother's like, ah! but Joseph's like, okay, calm down, calm down. I'm not going to kill you. I've, I've forgiven you. What you meant for evil, the Lord worked for good. So moving back to the waiting thing, Joseph never at any point here 
like took the initiative into his own hands. He didn't become, the Bible doesn't tell us that he became proud over his brothers and commanded them to bow down to him. No, he just told them, hey, I had this dream and went on with his life. In Potiphar's house, he was responsible in Potiphar's house. He didn't tell Potiphar, hey man, I'm doing all this for you, so you better bow down to me. No, he didn't do that either. In prison, he obviously wasn't wasn't like lording it over the other prisoners because when these two weirdos came to him with dreams, he was like, oh yeah, man, tell me, what, what's, go what's going on? What's wrong? So he was responsible there as well. And then even when he got to Egypt, he didn't, he didn't abuse his power as the Egyptian ruler. He wasn't arrogant and making everybody like bow down to him and everything because he was, he was nice to his brothers. Of course, he put them through the ridiculous rituals of like making them prove that they were changed and all of that. But he, at the end of it, he forgave his brothers. He, he welcomed them back with open arms and said, no, 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 forget all of that. I'm here now, and I, I, God had a plan to save everybody, because I'm here, and I'm helping with the famine thing, and it's all good. It's all good. And he waited on the Lord. He, if we go back to Psalm 27, verse 14, wait patiently for the Lord, rely on the Lord, stay with God. He waited on God and stayed with him. And so when we are given instruction to wait on the Lord, that means that you have to just sit there. Don't don't grab a hold of God's promise and go, No, I want it now! Give it! Because when Abram and Sarai did that, that turned out very, very poorly for them. Now, at, at the end of the whole thing, Abram and Sarai's promise, the promise that was given to them by the Lord, it was still fulfilled. They still received their own son. But it, it came with a lot of strife and a lot of problems just within Abraham and Sarah's own lifetime, and then, of course, generations down the line, because th there's still conflict there. But Joseph, Joseph waited on the Lord. He did not take matters into his own hands. He did not, like, he, he didn't lord it over everybody else. He served the Lord, and he was faithful to the Lord, and he did the best that he knew how to do in everything that his hands were set to do. And he waited on the Lord. I have my own little personal story about waiting. So uh, a couple years back, um, my family uh, knew that, well, my family, meaning my mom and dad, they knew that I'm very musical. And so they were kind of looking at different like musical tracks that I could maybe take academically. And so we looked at the University of Delaware music program. And the problem there is that it's like classical music. And if y'all know me at all, y'all know I am not, I'm not the classical pianist. You, you can take Chopin and just forget him because I'm, I'm not that kind of pianist. But, uh, so we looked into that. That was not the track. I said, nah. But then I looked into um, uh, Berkeley College of Music up in Boston. And my parents were a little reticent, understandably. Berkeley is, is a very secular school. It's, it's not a Christian school at all. Um, and so they were like, okay, let's look into this. Uh, they didn't just tell me no outright because that would just be, it, it would be foolish to not explore your options just a little bit and then pray about it and ask God. So they said, hey, let's explore our options. Who do we know who has experience with this? And so um, our, our good friend, um, Jeff Brickle from Urshan Graduate School, uh, we, we've had him here, if you, you all remember, he taught um, about a series on Revelation for big group learning a few months back. 
uh, he, he went to Berkeley, and so I talked to him about it, and I asked him about it, and he said, I, it's, it's not necessarily something you really need to get into unless you're really, really dedicated to music, and I was like, okay, well, okay. And then there was one other person who I consulted with, um, Sister Kathy Hernandez. Um, Sister uh, Kathy Hernandez is the mother of Charity Hernandez, who I knew through quizzing. So I asked Charity, hey, I know your mom went to Berkeley. Can I, ca can you ask her if I could, like, maybe ask her a couple questions about it? And Charity was like, oh, yeah, sure. So at Nationals, um, me and Sister Kathy, we just had a little talk. And Sister Hernandez said basically the same thing as uh, Brother Brickle in that, it's not really the healthiest environment for a Christian. If you were to go there, you would need to have very, very strong roots, and you'd really need to remember why you were there. And so it was basically kind of a no on all fronts. And I was, I was okay with that. I accepted that. I, I was just exploring my options. And so I said, okay, thank you. Thank you for the talk. And then she said, here, let me pray for you. Let me pray for you that, that God will send you a teacher, that God will give you what you need, that God will bring to you a person who can really help you develop in what you want to be and where you need to go in your musical development. And so we prayed and I thanked her. And then I was like, yeah, 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 I want a teacher. And so then after that, I was kind of a little anxious about it. Not anxious in the negative sense, but anxious as far as like, ooh, let's go, let's go, let's go. Come on, let's do this, let's do this. And so I waited. And I prayed about it, and I said, hey, God, where's there a teacher? Should I go looking for somebody? Nothing. No response. He didn't even give me a no. He just sat there, silent. And so I was like, oh, okay. Uh, how about now, God? After a few months had passed, nothing. And so t time keeps going on. I go down to Paraguay. There's really nobody there. Uh, I come back, then we hit quarantine. And then uh, a few months ago, we had a man on our Friday night with friends named Randall the Merchant. He's a good friend of Desi's. Uh, he was with Desi when he attended Urshan Graduate School and uh, Randy was there as well. And uh, he was on our broadcast and he and my parents had actually interacted when we were looking at the classical tract for, um, for the University of Delaware education. And I remembered that. And then Rachel sent mom a text one day, a couple days after that Friday Night with Friends broadcast, and she said, hey, is, is, Caleb, uh, is Caleb taking lessons? Is Caleb taking lessons? And mom said, um, Caleb, Rachel texted you. Uh, and so I texted her back and I was like, no, I'm not taking lessons at this point. And so Rachel says, oh, Randy is giving lessons. Randy is giving lessons and, and teaching people. So uh, if, if you're interested, you should definitely reach out. And so I did, I reached out. And now for a couple months now, I have been taking lessons with Randy DeMerchant. I am even taking uh, classes with him and currently working on a jazz audition because in my education at University of Delaware, I might want to go into uh, like an area uh, concerning jazz or, or rhythm and blues or something like that. That's what I'm interested in historically and musically. And so I just, uh, we're working on my entrance audition into the jazz program at University of Delaware. If I had, if I had really grabbed at that promise, if I had grabbed at that prayer that Sister Hernandez prayed over me, I might not have gotten into taking lessons with Randy at all. I might have gone for somebody who had less experience, 
for with somebody who was less interested in what I'm interested in, with somebody who had the wrong mindset about music because Randy is a Pentecostal, he's a, a, a good Christian, and he understands that worship is for the glory of God. And so he's teaching me everything that he's teaching me in that mindset that, that this music is to worship God. And we're both coming from the same mindset. And if I had, if I had just reached a little too hard at that, like gone and searched for teachers and the first teacher I, I found like, okay, God, okay. If, if I open Google, okay, the seventh result, put in the seventh result, the person who you want to teach me, boop, if I'd done that, that, that would, that would not have been something that God had told me to do. I would not have been waiting on the Lord. I would not have been relying on the Lord because to take that all into my own hands, that would have been relying on myself. That would have been taking it into my own hands and taking it into my own like machinations and, and strategies to find the will of God. But when God has a will for you, he's not just going to let you sit there forever. He's not just going to give you a promise and then let it come back void. When God tells you something, when God gives you a word, it's worth waiting for. When God told Abram and Sarai that he was going to give them a son, that I guarantee you they had no idea what he was going to be working through them. They, they had no idea of what God had in store for them. And so they thought, well, it's completely normal to take one of my servants, one of our servants, and have, have my husband sleep with her and produce a child, and then I'll take that as mine, and that, that'll be our child. That'll be his child that God has given us. Culturally, that made complete sense. People did that all the time. But it's not what God told them to do. It's not what God had told them would happen. They did not wait on the Lord, and they, they didn't mess things up entirely. Jesus was still born. He died on the cross. He came for our sins. The nation of Israel was born through Abraham and his descendants. But things got a little messy. If you look in the Bible, the Ishmaelites are referred to a lot of times as one of the like op opposing people that fought with the Israelites. The Ishmaelites came from Ishmael, that son of Hagar. So when we are told to wait on the Lord, it means that we have to rely on him. It means that we have to stay with him. It means that we have to sit there and just let things happen. And you might be saying, oh my, what? that doesn't make any sense. The, the, you can't just wait there and sit, you have to seize the day. Take it into your own hands. Like God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> That's not from the Bible. We have to to embrace this foolishness of waiting, because it doesn't make any sense in an earthly mindset. But to God, it makes all the sense in the world, because he sees all the pieces. He sees everything that's going on. He is working, and he's, he's laying a path for you. And if you'll just wait on him, everything will turn out better than you could possibly imagine. Thank you everybody for tuning in tonight. I hope that this message helps you and helps you to get more into a mindset of waiting on the Lord. I know I definitely need to do that some more. So with that, I bid you a good night and have a good evening.
Bye.